History is nothing but the actions of men in pursuit of their ends. History is nothing but the actions of men in pursuit of their ends. Put another way, history is economics in action. So said Karl Marx. Which meant for Marx that history had a trajectory and it had a goal. And that goal was liberation. Liberation of working people from the oppression of those who owned the means of production, the bourgeois. Liberation of the factory worker from the factory owner, the farm hand from the lord of the manor, the office worker from the corporate titan. And it's not just liberation from. For Marx, it was liberation to. Liberation to comity. Not comedy. Comity. An equality of workers. In which social harmony prevailed because class distinctions had disappeared. You see, for Marx, the goal of history was the liberation of mankind from oppression And to utopia. Now, we all know history has not been kind to Marxist thought. But that doesn't mean that his ideas haven't had an impact. Many would disagree with Marxism, but would agree that history really is economics in action. I mean, it's a well-known fact that presidential elections turn not on ideology, But on the economy, people vote their pocketbooks. Many Christians, especially in the third world, have resonated with the the vision that that Karl Marx laid out, this, this utopian vision. They've also resonated out of experience with his critique of economic injustice. One of the things that resulted from that is is, is something that's become known as liberation theology. Liberation theology points to the exodus of Israel from their bondage in Egypt as the paradigm for a revolutionary faith that leads to liberation. An economic liberation, a, a kind of utopia here on earth. Now, this winter, we're going to be looking at the narrative of Exodus. So not the whole book, just the first 19 chapters, the the narrative section of Exodus. And what we're going to see is that in one sense, the liberation theologians are right. Yes, you heard me. You heard me say that. The liberation theologians are right in one sense. Christianity is a revolutionary religion with with a radical message about a radical God who sets people, his people, free from their oppression. But as we look at the book of Exodus, one of the questions we're going to have have to ask is, is according to Exodus, what exactly is the oppression that we need to be freed from? Are are the chains that, that bind us merely economic? Or have they been forged even deeper? In the human soul. And and what if history is 
more than, not, not less than, but more than the actions of men in pursuit of their ends? What if history is also the actions of God in pursuit of his ends? So turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. If you're using a Bible that we've provided in, in the pews around you, it's found on page 88, right towards the beginning of, of the Bible. Page 88, Exodus chapter 1. We're going to look at the entire chapter this morning. The book of Exodus, while you're turning there, the book of Exodus uh, was written by Moses during Israel's 40-year wanderings in the wilderness. And it's actually book two of a five-book project known as the Pentateuch. We're kind of used to this now with the Lord of the Rings and its three movies. And, you know, so that's what's going on here. It's, it's, it's a five-book collection. And if Genesis was the prequel, Exodus picks up right where it left off, and it brings us to the main point of action in this five-book drama, the dramatic rescue, liberation of Israel from Egypt, and their constitution, their, their formation as God's people. Now, the historical events of this book occurred most likely in the 15th century B.C., a long time ago. But the rest of the Bible constantly looks back to the book of Exodus, constantly looks back to this as the paradigm, just like the liberation theologians say, as the paradigm of everything that God would do in the future. From the return of Israel from their exile in Babylon, to the ministry of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to his second coming, God's saving actions in history are described again and again by the Bible as a kind of Second Exodus. And chapter one sets it all up. Chapter one divides into four distinct scenes, kind of like the opening act of a play. And and what I propose doing this morning is just walking through those scenes. Now, each of the scenes is dominated by one particular actor on the stage of history. As we come to understand, I think, through this first chapter, the nature of Israel's oppression My hope is that we'll have a better understanding of the oppression that we all experience and what it will take and what it would mean to be liberated from that oppression. So scene one, Israel, that's the actor. Scene one, Israel. Look in verse one. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. The book of Exodus actually begins with the word and. And it it starts with this phrase, these are the names, that, that reminds the reader of one of the key sort of organizing principles of the prequel, Genesis. And that is the various accounts of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As, as Exodus opens, the actor who strides across the stage is Israel, the descendants of the patriarchs. We're reminded that 11 of the sons, grouped here according to their mothers, 
Jacob had four, well, two wives and two concubines. So the sons are grouped according to those mothers. They, they, they went down to Egypt at the end of Genesis, where they joined Joseph, who was already there, a, a high official in Pharaoh's court, a mere 70 people. It was a family reunion. And it was also a reunion that saved their lives from the famine that was sweeping across the region at that time. But fast forward 80 years to verse 6. Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But their kids were busy. Their kids were basically having a baby boom. Moses piles up the phrases. They grew, they were fruitful, they swarmed, they grew powerful, they they filled the land. He's not being wordy here. He's actually deliberately using phrases from Genesis chapter 1. When God created mankind, what did he tell them? He told them to be fruitful, to increase in number, to fill the earth and subdue it. What Moses is alerting us to there in verse 7 is that God has not given up on his original plan. That plan was for a a people that, that would bear his image, that would reflect his glory back to him, that would worship him uniquely as they they brought him glory, ruling the earth and subduing it. Now, sin and rebellion, beginning with Adam and Eve and carrying on with all humanity, has spoiled that plan, but but it hasn't stopped it. God was once again creating a people for himself, and he was starting with Israel, just as he had promised Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17. You see what I'm doing here. You won't understand book two in the five book project unless you begin to notice how it connects back to book number one, to to Genesis. Now, I wonder what you think God's purpose is for humanity. Maybe when you when you think about God and what his purposes are, you basically think of God as a as a taskmaster. Maybe you've heard bits and pieces of Christianity and you think, well, God just wants us as slaves. And so who needs a God like that or robots? Maybe it it appears to you that, that God's purpose for humanity is just to make our lives miserable. Or to catch us. You know, he's a gotcha God. No. Friends, from the beginning, God's purpose for humanity, God's purpose has been to create a people for himself and to bless them. That's God's purpose for his people, to, to make them fruitful. Because we bear his image and we are uniquely able to reflect back to him his glory. God's purpose is that his people would worship him. Not not by sitting around singing songs, but but as we see here in in, in verse 7. Through our productive, fruitful, creative lives. Lives in which our labor as well as our leisure, our work as well as our worship, our families as well as our faith bring him glory. This this description of fruitful Israel is meant to be just a small hint, a a small reminder of that basic truth about God. God's purpose for us is to bless us. 
It is a utopian vision, far bigger than mere economic redistribution. It's, it's a vision of abundant, creative, spreading fruitfulness. And that is God's purpose for his people. I, and I wonder if for some of you this morning, just that statement begins to challenge the way you think about God. That perhaps God is not fundamentally a taskmaster, but fundamentally a father and a king who delights to bless his people. Scene two. Pharaoh. Look at verse eight. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. A new Pharaoh strides onto the stage of history. In all likelihood, the Pharaoh that Joseph knew, the Pharaoh that Joseph served, was one of the Hiskos Pharaohs. You've probably never heard of them. But it turns out there was a foreign Asian dynasty that, that conquered Egypt and, and set up some Pharaohs. And it's most likely that that is the dynasty that Joseph served. They, they were thrown out of Egypt in the, the late 16th century. So this new pharaoh that's arisen, a, a native Egyptian pharaoh, well, you can imagine he's not going to be kindly disposed to foreigners, especially foreigners who helped the previous foreign regime, which had dominated Egypt. More to the point, as the text tells us, he's afraid of them, afraid of their numbers, afraid of their power and afraid of their potential to Take possession of the land, which is probably a better way of translating that last phrase in verse 10. Not so much fight against us and leave the country, but fight against us and rise up over the country. Take it over. So what does this Pharaoh do? Well, he decides to institute a program of population control. The Israelites, we're told in these verses, are enslaved. They are put to hard labor. They are oppressed and used ruthlessly, their lives become bitter, their labor cruel. Now, friends, it's, it's tempting at this point to read the narrative as a classic confirmation of Karl Marx's view of history. You can see where traditional liberation theology gets it. The bourgeois, the, the Egyptians who own the means of production and control the lovers of power, oppress the proletariat. The working class Israelites. But the reality is, I think that reading is far too shallow. Because just like the scene before, this scene once again connects us back to Genesis. Not the blessing of Genesis 1, but the deception and the curse of Genesis 3. As you listen to Pharaoh, 
could you hear the hiss of the serpent? You should. In Genesis chapter 3, the enemy of God's people, Satan, in the form of a serpent, deals shrewdly with Adam and Eve. He deceives them. And in the process, he enslaves them to sin and to death. And now what do we see here in the opening chapter of book two? We see a serpent king. Pharaoh, whose whose crown was adorned with a a, a snake, the, the symbol of his power, deals shrewdly with Israel. And in the process, enslaves them to bitter labor. But there's more even than that. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, when they decided to believe Satan's lie and live for their own glory rather than God's, how, how did God respond? He, he responded by judging them. He cast them out of the Garden of Eden and into a world that was cursed. And part of that curse particularly settled on Adam's labor. Adam's labor would now be futile rather than fruitful. It would be characterized by toilsomeness. It would be bitter and painful. Just like we see here. In Exodus chapter 1, there's no repeat of that initial rebellion. But there is a descent into bitter toil. You see, after the fall, the starting point for the people of God isn't the Garden of Eden. The starting point for the people of God is slavery in Egypt. And it's a picture of where all of us live. We are, according to Scripture, born into spiritual slavery. Because we are born into sin. So their lives and our lives are bitter because their lives and our lives are under the curse of God. We are oppressed, but it's not ultimately by the bourgeois. We have a far more brutal taskmaster. A far more cruel slavery. Slavery to sin and to death. A a, a dominion of Satan is what we are born into. Friends, this is our condition under the fall, under the curse of God. And it is why we need a rescue. It is why we need to be liberated. It is not poverty that we ultimately need to be liberated from. It is something far, far worse. Our slavery to the power of sin sin and death. Now, Now, as Christians, which is most of you sitting here today, As Christians who have been rescued already from the power of sin and death, it is because we understand the true condition of humanity that we are actually concerned with all human suffering. We're concerned about slavery. We're concerned about poverty. We're concerned about human suffering in every single form. And when you look at history, that's what you see amongst Christians. It was Christians who were at the forefront of the abolitionist movement. To outlaw first the slave trade and then slavery itself. It was Christians who were at the forefront of the civil rights movement here in America. It was, well, it is Christians, not actually in America, but over in Europe, who are presently very concerned and active in trying to champion relief from crushing third world debt. It is Christians here in America today who are at the forefront 
of the modern justice movement, going after human trafficking, going after modern day slavery in all of its forms and wherever it is. And you know what? That's right. We should do these things. We should be about these things. But we don't stop there. It is because we understand the true condition of humanity that we understand that it is not enough to merely pursue justice. We never want to do less. But we must always do more. Because if our problems are merely economic and political, then then economic and political solutions should fix them, shouldn't they? But they don't. I mean, whether you look at the history of communism or the history of capitalism, whether you look at the idealistic redistribution of wealth by progressives or the crass accumulation of wealth by the prosperity preachers on TV, Surely it is clear by now to us that wherever we look, the problem is not finally money. The problem is not finally politics. The problem is not finally education. The problem is not finally housing. The problem is the human heart. We need to be set free from the sin within that produces the injustice without The sin within that leads us to keep others down so that we can get up in the world. The sin within that makes us believe that if I can just get high enough in the world, I'll be okay. The sin within that defines my well-being by the things of this world rather than the God who made me. Friends, this is what we must be freed from. if Any of these other issues are ever going to be addressed. This finally is what the book of Exodus is about. Being freed, not from poverty, not not from the slavery that one human being can put another human being in. But being freed from the enslaving dominion of the serpent king, of Satan himself, so that we might once again serve the true king, the God who made us. And so know his blessing. Friends, do not settle for a lesser freedom. The freedom of more money, the the, the freedom of of more pleasure, the freedom of, of more convenience. Do not even settle for the freedom of good works. Because, friends, all of those lesser freedoms are just slavery in gentler dress because they have not addressed the heart. How God accomplishes this ultimate liberation that we so desperately need leads us to scene three, the midwives. Scene three, the midwives. Look at verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. 
Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. It turns out Pharaoh's attempt to to limit the number of God's people has backfired. The more he oppressed, the more God blessed and their numbers increased. And friends, that's just a theme in the Bible. The more God's people are oppressed, the more God blesses them. God will not be mocked by this world. We'll come back to this theme again and again. Anyway, their numbers are increasing. Pharaoh's plan isn't working. So, so Pharaoh, and, and we just, just because some of you are interested in the history of things, we're, we're probably now dealing with a different Pharaoh. Years have probably gone by. And this, this, and, and by the way, Pharaoh is never named. And I think that's quite on, isn't it interesting? Yeah, this is all for free. Isn't it interesting that the midwives get named? We know who they are. They are remembered. But Pharaoh, it's just a title. And even as we move over the course of this first chapter from one Pharaoh to another, the individuals are left in nameless anonymity. We just have this title. Well, anyway, Pharaoh ups the ante. It's not population control he's after anymore. It's genocide. Population removal. He calls in these two senior midwives who are clearly representatives of a larger profession of midwives. And he instructs them to kill the boys, literally to kill the sons as they're being born. But to let the daughters live. Uh, We're we're just given the, 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 the briefest of summary of the conversation. No doubt Pharaoh promised to make it worth their while. No doubt he promised them great rewards if these midwives would become complicit in his plan. Once again, we hear the hiss of the serpent. Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, as God cursed the serpent, he spoke past the serpent to Satan and he promised that there would be enmity between the serpent and the woman, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And in that curse, God promised salvation for his people. He declared that though the serpent would strike his heel, there would be a son born, a seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. And from that moment on, there was enmity, hostility, Between the people of God and the people of Satan. And it plays out right here. The serpent king goes after the male children. Because if he's successful, it's not just Pharaoh's plan that succeeds. But Satan's plan. His desire to prevent the birth of the one that would defeat him. But what the text tells us is that the midwives feared God. That is to say, they were far more concerned about God's reward than Pharaoh's reward. They were far more concerned about their ultimate accountability to God than their temporal accountability to Pharaoh. And so they obey God rather than man. In this case, of course, it means that their lives were on the line. And as you look at verse 19, it it looks like they're 
they, they concoct a lie, basically, to, to save their own necks. I actually don't think that the text, I don't think Moses wants us to read it that way at all. For one thing, God honors and rewards the midwives, which we'll see in verse 20. But, but I, actually, I think we see it in the answer that the midwives give. That, that's really the clue to what's going on here. Allow me to, to basically paraphrase it bring, it, bring it into more modern English. Basically, the response to Pharaoh goes something like this. Sorry, Pharaoh, I guess your women are just weak and ours are strong. Your women are weak and ours are really strong. And so they, they, they just don't need us. Do you see what they're doing there? They're mocking him. They're mocking Pharaoh. Pharaoh, of course, is a big king. He knows nothing about childbirth. They take advantage of his ignorance. And they mock him. And right there, in this mocking reply that he doesn't know enough to be able to even counter We see the beginning of the judgment of God against Egypt. Throughout the Old Testament, you see, God doesn't simply defeat his enemies. He mocks them as he defeats them. And the the mocking is part of the judgment. We're going to see it big time when we get to the plagues. But it begins right here in the mouths of these midwives. So we see something else, that yet another part of Genesis chapter 3 being fulfilled in Exodus chapter 1. Women would play a pivotal role on the front lines of the battle. Remember the promise that God made in Genesis 3.15. It would be through bearing a child that the serpent would be defeated. Because not only will Moses now be born. But eventually Joshua and David and finally Jesus. And all because the midwives feared God. Now it won't be the last time that Satan goes after the children. As we heard in the passage read earlier in the service, Herod the Great, another serpent king, is going to conduct his own slaughter in Bethlehem. But the child Jesus, just like the child Moses, just like all the boys of that generation, will be saved, and through him, so are we. So if you're here this morning and and you're not a Christian, you don't understand yourself to be a follower of Jesus Christ, one of the things that I want you to see in a a chapter like Exodus chapter 1 is that the promise of the gospel has been there from the beginning. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. This wasn't something invented later on but by 12 apostles. No, all along, God has planned to rescue his people from the oppression of sin through a son. That's why Jesus was born. That's why he was saved from Herod's slaughter. He was saved so that one day he could die as a sacrifice for sins. So that we who deserve to die for our sins might one day be saved. Friends, you see, it is through the birth and the sacrificial death and the resurrection of the Son of God 
that our rescue from the oppression of sin has been accomplished. If you would, if you would know that rescue, if, if, if you would like to know what it means to be liberated, not, not from the problems outside, but from the far worse and more intractable problems inside. Oh, friend, today is the day. Today is the day to put your trust in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was born to die and rise again. If you'd like to know more about what that means, what that would look like in your life, I'm going to be standing at the door in the back. I'd love it if you just come talk to me. Let me say something, though, more focused to the women in our congregation. Because it's hard to avoid that. I wouldn't want to avoid it. But I mean, it's right there on the face of our text. Women, Satan was unsuccessful in his attempt to destroy Christ. But do not think for a moment that his fury against women and children has lessened. The serpent has always hated humanity. And especially the people of God. And ladies, that means you and the children in your care are in Satan's crosshairs. You are a target. Like Pharaoh, Satan would today tempt you to be complicit in the destruction of your own children. Through abortion. Through neglect. Through outsourcing their care and nurture to, to people who have no concern for their spiritual well-being. But by, by buying into this world's lie and so being more concerned with your children's material prosperity and advancement in this world than in their spiritual prosperity and advancement in grace. Ladies, why is the enemy so focused on you? Well, perhaps it's because he knows that throughout history it has been at our mother's knees that we first heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because he knows that throughout history it has been because of a mother's prayers that the hearts of children have been won for Christ. Perhaps because he knows that throughout history it has been a mother's love. That has taught us so much about what God's grace and God's tenderness looks like. Mothers in this congregation. Do not despise your calling. I I don't mean to denigrate fathers. I I don't mean to really ignore them. You'll you'll get your turn later. But, But mothers. Do not think for one moment that somehow because you're a woman, because you're just a mom. Your role in God's great work of liberation is secondary. It is not. As this text so clearly demonstrates. And next week's text will do it again. And if you're a woman here this morning and and you're not a mother. Let me point you to these midwives. Take heart from these midwives. Fear God, not man. Order your life around his obedience and rest assured that God has more than one way to give you a household. God has more than one way to use you 
to this great end. Which leads us, I think, finally to the fourth scene and the final actor. His presence has been hinted at, his activity implied, but it's only now in scene four that God walks onto the stage. Look at verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Friends, in this final scene, the battle lines are clearly drawn. Only it's not quite what we expected. This is not going to be a battle between Israel and Egypt or even between Moses and Pharaoh. It is going to be a cosmic battle between God and Satan. Moses and Pharaoh are just the spokesmen. On the one hand, there in verse 20, we see God standing to bless his people. He rewards the midwives. He causes his people to increase in number even more. On the other hand, Satan's opposition just intensifies. Pharaoh rallies his own people. He calls them to the standard of his own satanic hatred. And he instructs them to throw every baby Hebrew boy into the river, the Nile River. It's significant because the Nile wasn't just a river. The Nile to the Egyptian mind was a god, one of the greatest of the gods in the Egyptian pantheon. It's the conflict of the ages. The hiss of the serpent is chilling in its hatred. The seed of the serpent is arrayed against the seed of the woman. The people of the world are bearing down on the people of God. But on the other side of the battle line, what do we see? We see God standing there. And in his kindness, calmly determining to bless his people. God, not, God is not rattled by the saber rattling on the other side. God is not worried about the outcome of this battle. God is assured in his determination to be kind to his people. Christian, this world is a battlefield. It is not a playground. The battle lines that we see there in verses 20 to 22 could not be more clear. If God does not intervene, all is lost. If God fails to keep his promise, disaster is going to ensue. But in fact, God is present. God has not forgotten. And in the midst of the suffering, as the suffering actually increases, as the suffering begins to reach a fever pitch, God is kind and we are fruitful. Faced with opposition, what happens to the church? Faced with opposition, the church grows. The church increases in number. Not because we're so great. But because our God is. As Martin Luther put it, 
Though this world with devils filled threatens to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Christian, do not lose hope. Knowing that God is kind to his people. We fear him. And in the midst of suffering, we await our final deliverance. You, you know, we have every reason to believe that our suffering in this life will actually increase, not decrease. We, we understand that God's blessing as people does not mean the absence of suffering. But God's blessing of his people is precisely in the midst of their suffering. The serpent continues to hiss. The serpent continues to strike. But against that. Since Titus chapter three, verse four. But when the kindness and love of God, our savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done. But because of his mercy. And having liberated us from the oppression of sin. Will not our kind God continue to deliver us from every opposition that the enemy throws at us? Will he not finally deliver us completely? Having delivered us already from the worst. As the Apostle Paul said, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Christian, the battle lines are drawn. But let the battle rage. For it is Christ who fights this battle for us. And he has already won it. Behold. Our kind God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us. For seeking our utopias prematurely. Forgive us for seeking our, our utopias in, in lesser things. Help us to understand. Help us to feel the true nature of the oppression we labor under. That we might come to know the true nature of the liberation that Jesus Christ brings. And give us confidence. Confidence in your kindness, confidence in your plan. Allow us, Lord Jesus, not to measure our lives by the circumstances and the sufferings that we experience. But to measure our lives by you. And your kind love to us in the gospel. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.